Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now. Where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you to the voice who introduces us, Ryan Treasure, VP of Broadcast Operations, and I like to say everything at Voice America. We are broadcasting live today. It is August, what? 11, 2021. Never thought we'd get to 2021, and now it's almost three quarters gone. Seriously, we're still swimming and treading water here. And we are broadcasting live on the Voice America Business Channel. We are live streaming. I'm so excited on LinkedIn and on Facebook. So I want my guests, before I introduce you, just wave hello to all of our live audiences. There you go. Good. I got them to wave. And gentlemen, after the show, we'll take pictures. So we have a serious topic for you. Everybody's worried about privacy. Who gets my data? What have I done? What have I told to too many people? What have I done digitally? Have I written something online that I wouldn't want my grandma to see? Your grandma's probably cool and hip these days, and maybe she would know what to do with it. I don't know. Anyway, digital security. Where is it going in the future? We're going to talk about an interesting topic called zero trust. Will it finally keep your data, your private information safe? That's the question on the table. So I have a couple of interesting quotes here. I found a quote from Peter Pan. This is from a song, You Can Fly, You Can Fly, from Bobby Driscoll as Peter Pan way back in 1953. Listen to this quote. We can fly, we can fly. This won't do. What's the matter with you? All it takes is faith and trust. Oh, and something I forgot. Dust, dust just a little bit of pixie dust. So I introduced the word trust in there. I know it was buried, but I have a reason. Buzz quote number two is from Finding Nemo, and the character is Bruce, voiced by Barry Humphreys. He is a great white shark, the leader of the fish-friendly shark support group. Who knew? Here is the quote. It's all right. I understand. Why trust a shark, right? Okay, we've got that word trust again. Chris liked that one, I can tell. So let's talk about reality today. In the world, cyber hacking, it's big. It's all over the place. It's challenging our institutions, our organizations, our public and private infrastructure, our personal lives, pipelines, public schools, meat production. No organization is safe anymore. And if you think, oh, my company's doing cybersecurity, good enough, uh uh not good enough anymore. So what should you do? The term zero trust was coined around April 1994, not to get too precise, by a gentleman named Stephen Paul Marsh for his doctoral thesis on computation security. So what does it mean? Zero trust implies, assumes there's no such thing as a trusted insider. And that's an authorized user in your company, in your organization, in your family, friends, whatever you're dealing with. It requires anyone gaining access to a network or to use resources on the network to jump through hoops. I want my guests all jump through hoops. Come on, let's all jump through hoops here. We're jumping through hoops in order to establish the right to be in that network. Trust no one, verify everything is more the philosophy. So I have four experts on the topic and I have to do a shout out to the man behind the scenes who suggested this topic to me and invited our panelists today, Don Deloche. Everybody give Don a round of applause. Here we go, round of applause, has to be round. Don is in the background watching us on Zoom. We have John Walsh. John, please wave for the audience. 
We have Chuck Byers. Hello, Chuck. Nice to see you. Chris Resendez, you've been on radio with me before. He's got the peace sign. And Matthew Erickson. We're going to ask them about their predictions on applying zero trust to apps on our phones and our computers. Should we? Will we? Can we? When will we? Why would we? How rethinking trust will impact all of us, how we live, how we think, how we trust, and why should we care? And the topic is the future of digital security. Will zero trust finally keep your information safe? Bonnie in the house, happy to be here. Delighted to have these panelists. I only know Chris Resendez, and we're going to find out what he's been up to as well as what my new guests are doing. So John Walsh, very happy to have you here. I'm putting you on full speaker view. You're going to be the star right now, John Walsh. I'm sure you already are. Tell us where you are, what you're doing, what do you do for a living, and why is zero trust important enough that you took time out of your busy day to be with us today? John, welcome. Thank you. Well, uh, I think zero trust is uh, something that I've been passionate about for the last uh, probably four years or thereabouts uh, when I began engaging with uh, the Dreamport, the government team that uh, was chartered uh, through a congressional mandate to demonstrate uh, some of the artifacts or characteristics of zero trust to see whether or not that architecture would accomplish the kind of things you've uh, you've described. So uh, today I continue to uh, work uh, in, in, in that domain. And, uh, and uh, zero trust is interesting in the sense that uh, it's not a technology, it's an architecture. And really collaborating with uh, the key people in the industry to look at how do we integrate, obtain the kinds of information and put in place policies. So working in the commercial space and its application to critical infrastructure in the DOD, both in the IT enterprise space uh, for DOD, as well as uh, in weapons and uh, critical infrastructure. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Let's go around the table. Chuck Byers, you are virtually sitting next to John Walsh, regardless of how it looks on your screen. That's where you are on mine. Chuck, welcome. Please introduce yourself. What do you do and why is this important to you? Well, hi, everybody. And uh, thanks to Bonnie and Don for inviting me and suggesting me for this really interesting topic. Uh, so I've been a 36-year geek uh, associated with network architecture, design, implementation, deployment, and uh, was a Bell Labs fellow for the famous uh, Alcatel-Lucent back in those days, and much of the stuff I did is still being uh, designed and, and manufactured by Nokia for their cellular infrastructures. I worked for Cisco for about 10 years, and Cisco is arguably one of the predominant practitioners of network security and tried to establish the foundation for things like zero trust, <laughs> secure access, service edge, all that kind of stuff. Um, right now, I have uh, two different gigs as a CTO. Uh, one of them is the Industrial Internet Consortium, where I work on trustworthy Internet of Things, which is about not only security, but privacy, safety, reliability, resiliency, all of that stuff for the 50 billion plus sensors and actuators that are going to be connected to the Internet in a few years. And that's an opportunity for quite a bit of cyber mischief. Uh, and, and those actuators really change the stakes, as we'll talk about as we get into this a little deeper. The, the, the hackers have unprecedented power if they can take control of those actuators. The second of my gigs is I'm, I'm CTO for a little drone company called Valkyrie, and we're worried about uh, dropping uh, packages into robotic handling machines and securing them inside of lockers until the recipient of those packages 
comes and fetches them. So that's a, a drone business that is potentially uh, kind of interesting for the future. In terms of security, it's, uh, it's the thing that keeps everybody up at night. And it's the thing that lots of people believe quite mistakenly that they've got under control. And it's the thing that you just don't know how messed up you are until something really horrible happens to your network. So uh, hopefully we can give you a few ideas and techniques to, to help you get your security postures under control and build somewhat more trustworthy networks as a result. Thanks. Thank, thank you, Chuck. Thank you very much. I love the way you called it cyber mischief. I have never heard it put into those playful terms. But really, when you look at the hackers, they're playing with us, right? They're toying with us. They're saying, okay, you think you can do this and be secure? <laughs> Not quite so fast. Don't believe it. And there they are. So we'll talk about that. Thank you. Next up, Chris Resendis. I, I can't remember the last time you were on. You did a couple of business shows with me in the past year. I'm happy to see you. Chris, welcome back. I'm going to put you on full speaker view and let's get an update on what you've been up to and why are you here today? Hi, Bonnie. It's good to be here. Don, thanks again for including me. Uh, I am, as always, the least technical person on the panel. I love that. Uh, following Walsh and Byers um, and, of course, uh, leading into Matthew Erickson. Uh, I'm really pleased and proud to maybe bring a voice of a marketplace or a collection of marketplaces that are struggling uh, to trust data that comes from systems of record that they're not comfortable with, they're not familiar with, and they don't know very well. Um, what's my story? 30 years in hard tech or embedded technology, sensing and instrumentation in national security, infrastructure, and industrial markets. Don't know much about social media, haven't been in too many typical uh, IT data centers. But if it's dirt, diesel, salt, mud, or if it's special places where you have austere environments without clean power and without secure communications necessarily, where the physical world meets the digital world or the cyber world, when we're talking cyber physical systems, as Chuck started to mention, when it's not just somebody posting a like or not posting a like and hurting your feelings, we're talking about the possibility of systems hurting people, uh, hurting communities, hurting the planet. So. I love the concept of zero trust inside the concept of cyber physical systems. And that's where I've been living for the past five years. I'm trying to bring secure technology into the climate security or climate tech space. And I can't think of any greater mission, at least for my experience set or for my partners at Context Labs than to make sure that decision makers who are concerned about climate security, climate resilience, climate regeneration can get access to data from sources they know, from sources they trust, and the data can be trusted because we need to make some pretty significant decisions to start, stop, or pivot with some of our largest systems globally and the implications on communities, on climate, not just on financial markets or for national security, but indeed, in some cases, we're talking about the existence of places being dependent upon the ability of the decision makers to trust the data that they're being delivered to make these massive decisions my business today at Context Labs is to try to help people trust data that comes from systems that they may not recognize. I'll leave this with this. Trust is a social construct. The systems are not going to deliver trust, but they could deliver tools and methods and sources and policies that would enable us to trust them. And that's what I'm eager to learn more about with this crew. 
Thank you so much. I feel like I got a vocabulary lesson, Chris. <laughs> that, that was wonderful. Interesting that trust is a social concept, isn't it? I trust you, the, the opening about the, the pixie dust from Peter Pan and don't trust a shark. We're still talking about people. But when the gentleman who coined the concept in his computational thesis, he was talking about beyond morality, more beyond ethics, beyond people as a mathematical concept. So he's taking it out of the social context into more scientific. We'll talk about that later. Thank you, Matthew Erickson. You've been so patient. We are more than ready to meet you. So I'm going to put you on speaker view. Matthew, welcome. Tell us a little bit about what you do and what's your take on Zero Trust. Go ahead, Matthew. Hi. Well, great to be here. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you, Don. And uh, I've spent over 10 years at SpiderOak, a company focused on cryptographically enforced zero trust, if you think about it. We've been around since 06. I've been with the company since uh, 2010, and uh, we didn't call it zero trust at the time, but it's this data-centric concept of making sure that you know, you, the data can get out there. Imagine your networks are violated already, and how do you protect against that? How do you protect against your service providers? Because it's not just zero trust as a bad thing. Like, we think we talk about the sharks and yes, you don't want to get eaten by a shark and sharks typically eat you. Right. Uh, but we also, you know, as a social operational construct, uh, trust is also, well, you know, the people have enough to do with their day jobs. Like why, why is clicking on an email leading to a situation where the enterprise gets compromised? Uh, that's, the problem isn't the phishing training isn't good enough. It's that phishing can happen in a technological sense. So uh, I, my career started uh, through college and robotics, went to uh, climate research, and then uh, moved into uh, cryptography and zero trust at SpiderOak. And I'm very excited about how we can take technology and apply that to actual real social problems because really we technology doesn't exist for its own sake. I'm sure that there is some like Google AI that's sitting there doing uh, solving problems entirely for its own uh, gratification. But uh, outside of that, uh, you know, we, we build technology systems to serve humans. Like uh, Thoreau said, who rides, do, uh, do humans ride on the railroads or do the railroads ride upon the backs of men? And you know, we, we should be riding on the railroads and the technology needs to enable us to work together better to do that. I want to say amen, but this is not a religious show. So <laughs> thank you all. I'm, I'm ready to say, wow, let's go sit down over a virtual coffee. And I just want to learn from all of you. I'm, I'm very impressed. Don Deloche, you selected this panel very, very well. Let's have some fun with our movie quotes. I've asked my guests to send me a quote from a movie, a song, a, a character in a movie, character, a TV show, or a song lyric that has absolutely nothing to do with our topic. And they're going to relate it in their own words right now live on the air to the topic. So we have a very classic quote here John Walsh has selected from Spock, played by the iconic and not with us anymore, Leonard Nimoy. The Vulcan salute he portrayed, uh, he portrayed Spock, the half-Vulcan character, Mr. Spock, on the original Star Trek TV series. A 1968 New York Times interview described the gesture as a double-fingered version of Churchill's victory sign. Okay, and Nimoy said that he decided the Vulcans were a hands-oriented people. The Vulcan salute consists of a raised hand with a palm forward 
and the thumb extended while the fingers are parted in the between between the middle there we go and apparently the st- the crew on on the starship the the uh, cast had to learn how to do this it, it's not something you just put up your hand and do the benediction live and prosper is attributed to the 18th century organized crime figure jonathan wild no pun on his last name in his 1725 biography written by possibly daniel defoe that's all the history i care to share here john walsh live long yes. and prosper what does this have to do with our topic talk to me well you know uh as we look forward in terms of uh, whether we're, you know, Chris and I in the past have had a chance to look at the World Organization Sustainable Objectives, whether we're looking at what the biggest opportunities for economic growth, national security, and any way you want to look at health, um, the topic we're talking about today is uh, critical. So living long and prospering is, is, is a, having to be able to provide to you know the world the things that we need to be more productive to be more healthy to be more sustainable in terms of you know our resources our food and so this whole thought process around instrumenting the physical world and utilizing technology to do these things has to be uh trusted right and and whether we want to accept it or not we live in an environment where we're under attack. So, you know, in many respects, uh, due to the competitive forces of global nations, um, this, uh, these platforms are becoming uh, uh, ones in which can be used to impact uh, national security, health, economies, and uh, it's getting to be very serious. Uh, and we're dealing with nation states that over the years have a history, you know, uh, with the United States and others. and. Uh, they're now using this platform as a way to continue to drive their agendas. So we have to get really serious about this. And so it's all about how do we live long and prosper? And uh, this is one of the key attributes of something that we have to address in order to do that. Thank you very much. Interesting, John. And I'm thinking of why do people want to hack us? Because we have something they want right? Isn't it really that simple? We have something they want. Is it data? Is it insights into an organization? Is it uh, copyright information? Is it personal data? They need to do something they think with something that we have that they have to get without our permission. I think it really boils down to that. And then we get into the technology. Let's go to movie quote. Chuck Byers has sent us a quote from Dr. Ian Malcolm played by also the iconic actor Jeff Goldblum. I think I saw him in the fly at a movie theater in Flushing, New York in 19... Oh, God, Chuck, what year am I dating myself back to in the (laughs) 70s? Oh, my goodness. Jurassic Park, let's bring it up a little more modern. 1993 American science fiction media franchise centered on a disastrous attempt to create a theme park of cloned dinosaurs. Dr. Malcolm is a gifted mathematician who specializes in chaos theory. Why not? The character was inspired in part by American historian of science James Glick, G-L-E-I-C-K, and French mathematician Ivar Eklund. And here is the quote. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Oh, Chuck, I got goosebumps on that one. Help us out here. Why does this relate to our topic? Well, I, I think that security practitioners all think of themselves as scientists. And I think that they all believe that what they're doing is the right, best approach to their mission. 
And history has shown that they're wrong almost all the time. There's always, you know, one other hack, one other vulnerability, one other opportunity for the best laid plans of those security practitioners to be totally messed with by the cleverness of the nefarious folks out there trying to take over our networks. So I think that the quote embodies what you might consider to be a, a healthy skepticism in the abilities of science to control the universe. And it also is a word of caution and warning against people getting too cocky in their attempts to control the universe. Zero trust is kind of a way not to trust anybody, right? You, 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 in fact, it's not just about not trusting people and their motives and their capabilities. It's really about data, applications, devices, networks, and people. And you don't trust any of those things unless they're mutually authenticated and you re-authenticate them all the time. So that's kind of like should, that, that, that should part of that quote. You never stop to think if you should, and the way that it resonates with me is in Zero Trust, we do stop and think if we should, if, if we should trust this, if we should do this, if we should enable that, that capability or that policy, because before we do anything, we are very rigorous about uh, validating that everybody is trustworthy. That's what we should do is, is to make sure that we can do that. Thank you very much. Love the quote. Appreciate that. Let's go. Chris Resendez, you're next. You've sent us a quote from a band I've never heard of. Fuel, F-U-E-L. American rock band formed in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania by guitarist songwriter Carl Bell in 1989. And the original song, original lead singer and longest standing member of the band is Brett Scallions. Innocent is the song. And it's from the studio album in 2000. And the, the album title is Something Like Human. It's certified double platinum. And I don't know if you knew this, Chris, but the song was performed live on The Late Show with David Letterman at some point. So there, ah, I love when my facts are a surprise for my guests. Here's the quote from Innocent by Fuel. This far down the line and still ain't got it right. <laughs> Chris, talk to us. Well, I think from the title of the album, to the title of the song and from that quote specifically, I chose it because uh, in a serendipity, but thank you, Chuck. Um, I don't know if I learned this from Chuck or from John, but the concept of just because we can doesn't mean we should uh, connect an asset, connect a sensor, uh, throw data on the internet. Um, the reason why I like the quote within the context that you just described um, is that I think we are at a moment where we need to get the fundamental intention of our cyber physical systems right. I don't think it's about convenience. I think that's a feature. I don't think it's about profit. That's a tool. I think the intention of our cyber physical systems going forward needs to be some new killer app. I would argue resilience. If we can build resilience into our systems, including using zero trust, then we can enable those resilient cyber-physical systems to enable communities to achieve resilience, either through a new generation of population health tools delivered over smartphones or a new generation of climate-aligned cyber-physical critical infrastructure, um, or it's just a new way of creating or counting or trading value through the next generation of digital assets or tokens or coins. The future isn't digital. The future is cyber-physical. The future is for humans. The future is for uh, a resilient, regenerative planet. And I love what Matthew said earlier. Look, you know, we're riding the rails. 
Um, and in this case, the data and the digital systems need to be behind us and under us. I don't believe that robots are partners. I don't believe that uh, autonomous operations are necessarily the best solutions. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Just because we can make things easier doesn't mean that should be the primary goal. Just because we can become more profitable doesn't mean it should override resilience. So for me, I think to get it right, I think we've got to find a new killer app, and I propose resilience. Thank you very much. This is uh, very important. I think that's breaking news, Chris. We're going to hold you to that, okay? We're going to check back with you in, what do you need, a year to create that killer resilience app? We're, we're looking forward to that. When is the IPO? Let's not go there. Okay, let's go to Matthew Erickson has sent us a quote from Max, actually Max Rakatansky, played by Tom Hardy, the movie you all may recognize the character, Mad Max Fury Rose 2015, Australian post-apocalyptic action film considered one of the greatest action films of all time and one of the best of the 2010. Okay, and here is and Charlize Theron was also in the movie. There you go. So here is the quote. If you can't fix what's broken, you'll go insane. Matthew, help us out here. That's not what we wanted to go ahead. (laughs) Well, and I I didn't I originally didn't want to include the lead up to that quote, which opens with, you know, hope is a mistake. And, uh, you know, that's a really uh, when you think about the world of Mad Max. It's a world where uh, there's both climactic and political disasters leading the world to that state. Uh, If you watch the entire movie series, you can kind of see the world just kind of step-by-step crumble like that. And hope isn't, hope that somebody else is going to fix it isn't enough. Uh, That's, you know, we can't as a, a set of technologists just hope that the hackers are going to go away hope that there'll be some, uh, you know, to bring up Peter Pan, some magic pixie dust that'll make it all better without us having to adapt to new realities, new methods of operating. And zero trust, when you really bring it down to its uh, basis, this is a way to actually try and fix what's broken. And instead of just going nuts in some Australian uh, hexscape, Okay. Wait a minute. You can't just leave us with Hexcape. What is that? Well, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit uh, more family friendly with my choice of language on the oh, show. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, pre- yeah, I, I don't know who on who in the LinkedIn family. Okay, that's appreciated. Thank you all for the quotes. Now let's go take a deep dive into our predictions. That's what the future of technology technology revolution. The future of now is all about John Walsh. I've selected your prediction number one, put in the chat for you. I'll tell you how this is going to work. Take two to three minutes, unpack it as they say on the news shows. If anybody on the panel wants to make a comment, just raise your hand. Teacher, teacher, call me, call me, and I will call you. Otherwise, I will go ahead. I've already put a, a prediction into the chat for Chuck. I'll put in one for Chris and one for Matthew, but you're welcome to Just put your hand up and I will call on you if you have comments and that's fine. So we can make these into discussion points. John Walsh, prediction number one, the concept and properties of zero trust architectures will become the foundation to which our IT enterprise and OT systems are built. Take it away, John Walsh. Well, I think that's what this this event's all about is to have this concept uh, discussion. But I would say that while the, the... thought process around zero trust has been around and has been evolving. Uh, Most recently, uh, uh, the U.S. government has begun to uh, take a a significant interest 
for critical infrastructure and for the DOD IT enterprise architecture in Zero Trust. Uh, we know Google has deployed it. We know uh, others are deploying it. Um, so I think what's interesting is uh, developing the standard definition of what the, what the properties are of Zero Trust um, that'll make it successful. And so there's a lot of activity going on within NIST. NIST has a project right now uh, at the National Center of Cyber Excellence to uh, bring industry and government together to begin to look at demonstrating concepts of zero trust. We're beginning to look at how to implement and pivot those concepts into our critical infrastructure. And so I think the things I spoke about earlier uh, as we look at the failure in many respects of the traditional approach um, uh, is uh, going to continue to drive us as a nation to having to do something different, something that succeeds. And I think as we together talk this morning, I hope in some of these uh, predictions we're making, we should be talking about some of the inherent flaws that exist in our architectures today. These systems were developed initially uh, to provide capabilities general purpose processing, right? These operating systems, these computing architectures inherently were developed so uh, we could do more with them. And so one of the things I'll talk about later is a concept we're, we're, we're introducing at Bedrock Systems, and we're arguing that this should be a key property of zero trust, and that is to take the concept of least privilege and to extend that to a concept of least functionality. Uh, the adversaries take advantage of the fact that these systems are general purpose processing systems and find ways around what we're trying to protect. So our concept is how do we get them to only do the things? How do we constrain these operating systems? How do we constrain them to the least functionality required to do the specific tasks they need to do? Thank you very much. Very interesting prediction. Let's go to Chuck Byers. I have selected your prediction. Let's see what I got here. Prediction number two. You say today we worry about zero trust day exploits. We need you to unpack that. Where a new security vulnerability is exploited by hackers in the time span of hours or days. And you say in the near future, when AI is applied to these networks, we'll have to worry about zero second exploits. Wow. I don't have a clock fast enough for that. Where AI systems can continuously search for vulnerabilities and exploit them in seconds. We're going to go to nanoseconds. Chuck, predict for us, please. Go ahead. Yeah, so the, the whole zero-day exploit thing is uh, is sort of, sort of the worst nightmare of cybersecurity professionals. Somebody discovers a problem, maybe something with an operating system or something in a cellular network or, or whatever, that uh, allows the, the hackers uh, a little crack in the door to get into those networks. And then, of course, once they're inside the networks, they can go crazy. Um, and, and what generally happens is there's a huge foot race when a zero-day exploit is announced between the hackers who all want to go off and see, oh, will this work on the DoD? Will this work on Microsoft's website? Will this, will this take down Apple? You know, all these questions. And, and the McGaffey's and Norton's of the world that need to produce uh, security software updates to try to plug that hole as quickly as possible before those things happen. The point is, is that, that that's a foot race right now kind of between bunches of people in you know, sweaty rooms trying to understand what to do and how to do it fast. In the coming years, artificial intelligence technology is going to be applied to both ends of this equation. 
So what's going to happen is the, the hackers are going to be searching for all these zero-day exploits automatically using AIs to probe every possible corner and, and exploit every possible thing and guess every possible password. And as soon as they find a vulnerability, a, a way that they can get their foot in that door of your network, then they're going to apply AIs to automatically blast that exploit everywhere and try to infect every system that they can get their hands on inside and outside of every network that they can compromise. Uh, so this is an arms race. And the folks who are using AI out there are uh, directly against the, the white hat, good guy hackers, who are trying to counter those attacks. You look at the way we do right now, you know, where, where somebody in a Microsoft conference room will call, you know, the emergency alarms go off and they go in there and try to figure out what's happening and fix it. That's not going to work. There's going to have to be big AIs that are continuously monitoring for these intrusions. And as soon as an intrusion or possible intrusion is discovered, those AIs have got to do something immediately within a zero second time scale to counter those intrusions. The zero trust security world gives us a very powerful tool to sort of uh, framework those AIs because we can say, okay, we saw something suspicious. Let's make Every element, every person, every database, every stream, every network that we're talking to reauthenticate, and do so in a context that uh, is hopefully applying the, the new learnings from the new white hat AIs in order to instantaneously block those attacks that are coming in uh, rapid fire. So I think zero trust security is a really excellent way for us to get the good guys AIs have a kind of an asymmetric warfare advantage, which if we don't have the advantage with the white hats on, civilization is really up the creek. There's there's really no mechanism for us to counter AI-driven cyber attacks unless our AI on the good guy side is better. Thank you, Chuck. Matthew, you want to say something? Go ahead. Uh, so, I mean, John and uh, Chuck are both making uh, very good points here about the increasing sophistication and defenses to do that. Something that we've been looking at is what if we could start formally proving the correctness of systems? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, John's concept of limiting functionality. Uh, computers, we invented computers so we could solve problems with arbit adding arbitrary complexity to things. You take a look at a mechanical watch. It can do one thing. It can tick. There's a lot of complexity in that mechanical watch, but it ticks. That's all it can do. But take a look at a computer or any sort of other approximation of a Turing machine. Mm -hmm. And you can start adding unlimited complexity bounded really only by your imagination. And now we have systems where it's layers of complexity upon layers of complexity upon layers of complexity. Just even our images to each other today, uh, just being encoded and sent across networks around the world and live streamed to other people today uh, that's insane amounts of complexity. Nobody actually understands every nut and bolt the way things do. So we're talking, uh, we're taking a good look at how to formally prove the correctness of a system. And not only that, that it doesn't do the wrong thing, how to limit that and make sure that it's doing only what it's supposed to. Thank you, Matthew. John wants to say something. John, unmute yourself, please. There you go. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, Really good points. In fact, um, I'm going to argue that this concept of AI and machine learning 
is just uh, ways for us to try to remove the hay, to find the needle in the haystack faster. In fact, I'm going to go as far as saying that the increase in interoperability, abstraction layers, and so on, is going to continue to make things more and more complicated. And the folks that are relying on AI and machine learning are the traditional players in cybersecurity doing deep packet inspection. They're, they're trying to inspect trust in. So we operate on a concept of allow everything in the general processing and compute space, deny by exception. And deny by exception is when these uh, inspection systems essentially look for something we already know, behaviors we've seen, attack vectors that have already been used. And the problem is, it's all about then detection, uh, remediation, restoration. It has to start with prevention. So we're shooting behind the duck. We're not shooting in front of the duck. So we've got to, in my opinion, just like Matthew said, we need formally methods, proven architectures, trusted compute base, and we have to move to least functionality. We've got to make the problem smaller. We have to eliminate the complexity by constraining the capability of the devices. So even in the zero trust architecture, if the zero trust architecture is built on the inherent flaw of having to inspect trust in, in my opinion, we're gonna to continue to see the ransomware attacks and the solar winds and the kinds of things. So the, in, the, the traditional approach has to change. Thank you. Good conversation started right, I'm there. I'm passionate about that. <laughs> I, I, no kidding. I think we got that. Chris, I want to get your prediction number one in here. You say cybersecurity across all enterprises will increasingly integrate zero trust principles and services. We may not see them. We may not understand them. And the networks may not achieve some platinum certification for zero trust, but elements of zero trust architectures will permeate all digital systems. This is a big prediction. Chris, unpack, please. Well, I'm just going to ride on what John and Matthew and Chuck said, which is that we have um, we've built a bunch of systems that I think fundamentally have been optimized for uh, denied by exception, have been optimized for inclusion, have been uh, have been optimized for uh, least uh, least friction, and I think what we've built is um, we've built a fairly complex set of interconnections among systems that now can no longer be trusted fundamentally. So I'll give you an example. Uh, in my business, you know, Context Labs, one of the big things we're trying to do, uh, for example, is to say to clients, um, we don't need you to push all of your systems of record through our platform. We need to have a discussion about which elements of your system of record need to be distributed. Uh, and then we need to figure out how we're going to test and persist the tests of the sources, of the payloads, of the original metadata, and of any derivatives. And so in another way of saying this is that we're deploying zero trust principles in our platform that is essentially saying we're not going to let our clients distribute data to regulators, to host communities, to risk and finance entities, to capital markets, to commercial markets, or to these new environmental attribute markets. We are not going to allow a client to make the horrific mistake of releasing something to the public and if one bit of one million bits is untrue or inaccurate, it's that whole concept of it's going to, it's that one bit that's wrong, whether it's unintentional corruption and misinformation or an intentional hack creating disinformation, 
that the 999,999 good bits are going to be ignored for the one bit that was wrong. So this concept of denying by exception from my perspective is perhaps one of the fundamental ills of the architectures we're in. I'm going to do this, Bonnie. I got to do it. You let me before. I've got a, I've got a dog. She's a golden doodle. She's really smart. She's really sweet. Every time I come home, that dog knows someone is coming or something is coming to the house. Now, at some point, it may understand it's a human, H-O-O-M-A-N, but she's constantly pinging me, testing me to make sure it's me. She will look at me walking through the drive. She will look at me coming in the house. She will sniff. She'll sometimes sniff multiple places. She'll run to, but she has a whole system of like trust services that she's applying to me. No matter how many times I come in the house, like I have to go through a process with the dog for the dog to be okay. And I do believe some of that is to make sure that it's actually me. So I don't want to take it too far, but for people who are not really getting like what we're talking about here, if they're not seeing the dog we're walking, imagine if you've got a pet every time you come home, you kind of look at the pet go, it's me, dummy. Well, (laughs) at the end of the day, zero trust architectures force contributors of data or those who want access to the system, we test their patience, we test their frustration because we want them to get to the point where they say, it's me, dummy, before we let any entity into the system or we let any transaction go through. Hopefully that wasn't too corny. Chris, I love it. What do you mean too corny? It's perfect because it's relatable. People say, yeah, I got a dog. Yeah, I think she remembers me. What's the name of your dog? The dog's name is Daisy. And, uh, you know, Matthew, we're in the wrong position here because... She, does, she, you know, she doesn't do chores for me. I'm doing chores for her, man. I got to flip that one. I don't know how to do it, though. <laughs> Is Daisy there? You want to bring Daisy on camera? Chris? No, she got the boot from, she got the boot a few minutes ago. She would, yeah, she, she wouldn't, she wouldn't tolerate me giving, giving this crew too much attention. Oh, okay. Oh, I understand. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Oh, we love the Daisy story. You can tell it every time you come on my shows. I appreciate that. Matthew has been waiting patiently. Let's do prediction number one, Matthew. You say, this is interesting. This is, I think, foundational to why we're having this conversation. Matthew says, he predicts attacks on infrastructure and business will continue to grow in numbers and sophistication. And Matthew, when you unpack this, could you please address my question, which I haven't voiced yet. My question is, are they doing it for fun? Or as I said before, we or a business has something they want that they think they can gain value from stealing from us, basically. But is it just is there an element in these attacks that, yeah, it's really cool. I figured out a way. We see that on TV shows all the time. Yeah, it's really cool. College kids. Yeah, I I could do it. It's a college. It's a class project. I think I'll go hack into a major. What? You did that? So where does it? Why? I want to know the why. Matthew, predict, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... uh well, first off, to answer your question, uh, it's always getting some value. Because why does a college kid do it? They're getting value from the entertainment or they're getting street cred. Yep. Uh, they're getting uh, social increased social standing by uh, putting their name across, say, a DOD website, right? Uh, or, you know, hacking the Gibson, uh, for those familiar with the movie. Uh, and so they're get, it's always a value proposition no matter what. And maybe in the 90s, you had some limited government hacking, some limited cyber crime, and by and large, a bunch of kids that were high-fiving each other over hacking the Gibson. Uh, but the, uh, as, we've, as society's gotten uh, more advanced and we've become more interlinked, uh, there's value to be had. You know, why, somebody asked a bank robber, well, why do you rob banks? His response was, well, that's where they keep the money. 
So, uh, and moving into talking about bank robbing, the the attacks, cyber is pretty interesting because anyone can sit down with a cheaply available laptop and start learning how to do this and to develop their own personal arms locker of tools. Now, it takes a very sophisticated bank robber to go in with thermic lances and crazy drills and breach the vault. Most of the time, you know, it's just a simple little note slipped across the counter. Uh, and we're not sitting there watching bank robbers in America drive up with armored cars and blasting open the door with military weapons. Because physical weapons, physical systems used for attack are very large, they're very conspicuous, they're very tightly regulated because they are large physical things. Whereas really, when you know, we talk about knowledge workers, these are almost, not, these are all knowledge systems effectively. Uh, when we talk about having all this unlimited complexity in the system, really the, the only thing that a cyber attacker, cyber malcontent uh, has is that they understand a part of the system better than uh, the designers of the system, right? They might have learned out, they might have figured out how it ticks just a bit better and they can leverage that to break into security. And that's something that not only do we see domestically, but that's Iran and North Korea can gain those same capabilities much more easily and quickly than they can say replicate the F-35. Okay, thank you very much. Interesting. And I did, of course, have to look up because I don't know hacking the Gibson. I looked it up. Hack the Gibson, a phrase originated from the movie Hackers, 1995, generally used either with somewhat a degree of a compliment to another person or used as a sarcastic term directed as those who request the stereotypical how to hack posts, usually an unskilled, unwilling person willing to learn script kitty something or other, dot, dot, dots off after that. Is that the correct interpretation, Matthew? Okay. Yeah, thank both you. both meanings. Thank you very much. So when you used it, what did you mean uh, in terms of hacking the Gibson? What was your context? Well, in the movie, when we're talking about uh, hackers uh, doing this for their own social standing, really kind of the first phrase. In the movie, you have a basically a team of uh, a team of uh, basically late teenagers, twenty somethings that are. Uh, saving the world through hacking this big corporate mainframe that was called the Gibson and high fives and everyone wins all around boy gets the girl and you know, classic movie ending. They ride off into the digital sunset. Thank you very much, Chris. I think you raised your hand. You want to say something? I think, I think Walsh went first. So I'm happy to follow Walsh. Walsh, go ahead. All right. Now I'm going to say this simply. I think uh, Chuck said it earlier. Uh, we're at war. I mean, we have to recognize that uh, the asymmetry of uh, the uh, cost more to defend than it, than it does to attack brings players into the environment that otherwise wouldn't participate. So when we were in the Cold War, uh, during the Cold War era, uh, you had to be an economic power in order to build the types of weapons in order to participate. And countries went bankrupt like the Soviet Union in doing that. The asymmetry, if you will, of the cyber attack now allows players to have large impacts, economic, national safety, and so on. So at the end of the day, uh, not to get political, but the Russians, the Iranians, the North Koreans are mapping our critical infrastructure. They're testing cyber weapons. 
So in my opinion, this is no longer about defending against the someone who wants to be uh, recognized for status. This is defending against rogue nations that have specific political agendas against the U.S. or in the world economy, and they're exercising those. And that makes matters worse is when they exercise these cyber weapons like uh, Stuxnet uh, and others, they become publicly available and enable others to make variations of those. So we've got to get to a point where the asymmetry of the attack versus the defense shifts. I think that's the big issue. Chris, go ahead. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm glad John brought that up. Uh, the need to shift uh, the asymmetry from the attacker to the defender. I'm just going to build on something that Matthew said. Take what's happening uh, in Matthew's world around, say, uh, financial services and the financial systems globally. Um, It is, in fact, light years easier um, to hack your way into accounts than it is to uh, torch and shoot your way into banks. Now think about all the other critical natural assets or critical infrastructure assets that we depend on that are, from my perspective, at least as important as the global financial system. Talk about water or talk about water wastewater systems. Uh, Look, without air, we're not sentient. Without water, we're not human. And the idea that we have water markets, water rights markets, we have all kinds of rules and regulations emerging about who gets access to what water under what terms and conditions, that's all being digitized. And so as we think about what basic life as a human on the planet Earth is, to John's point, the critical infrastructure systems, communications, energy, water, wastewater, transportation, public safety, they are all digitally enabled. And what I would hope is that as we all together, Bonnie, you offered, we all start looking at resilience as the killer app. We take the same approach to digital services as we do, for example, to the purchase of baby food. You know, nobody just goes blindly and grabs jars off shelves. Nobody just goes blindly and throws their kids in cars. Parts of our culture as humans have been conditioned to look at safety first. We need to bring that safety first concept or that safety first consideration into our digital lives as well and be okay with paying a little more or waiting a little more or doing a little more to elevate what we can truly trust in our digital world. And and that'd be my sort of final parting shot, which is convenience is a feature, profit's a tool, resilience is the killer app. What we're trying to do at Context Labs is make the friction that we introduce to systems small with the huge gain in your ability to trust what comes out of it. But if we can't get the average ordinary everyday human to accept maybe a little bit of friction and a little bit of cost and a little bit of time, and they can't get only exactly everything they want real time, we're going to be in trouble, as John says. So maybe zero trust is a way to have the lightest weight approach to introducing friction into our lives so that we can have massive gains in cyber trust. Thank you. All good, very good points. I had a quote that I didn't read at the beginning of the show from techrepublic.com. It's an article called Zero Trust, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I have one line I thought was interesting from that. The name itself, Zero Trust, has unwelcome implications. It appears that management does not trust employees or that everything done on the network is suspect until proven innocent. And that's what we were talking about, right? The inconveniences, right, Chris? And whatever, what those hoops you have to jump through, which I did mention in the beginning. I have a, a comment to make to all of you. We're almost done. We have about four and a half minutes. But I interviewed a couple months ago a gentleman named Christopher Hadnagy, H-A-D-N-A-G-Y. If you're not familiar with him, Matthew, you might. He wrote a book on social engineering, and he did an experiment. He is hired and engaged his team to go and check out the security of 
institutions. He can't even name them in the book, but it sounded like the intro to his book, like an opening scene from a movie, from a spy movie. And he is sitting in a rugged vehicle on terrain outside of a maximum security fence that's seven feet tall. And there are dogs that are on a loop of security guards going through the, and there is other electronics on the fence. And he has already prepared by having a female in his company call up the company the week before and say, oh, my boss so-and-so, and and she made up a name, was on your guest list, and he lost the password to go to your conference next week. Can you give me the address and the password? And she trusted him and gave him all of the information. He was able to get somebody in that building. They were able to time the rotation of the dogs and when the electric fence turned on and when everybody was coming and going. And he and his partner were able to scale that fence without being detected and break into that building. The implication is it was a major U.S secure, maximum secure building. Social engineering, getting people to believe who you say you are and trust you. We have just two minutes left. My engineer just told me I need a one sentence prediction. Let's rate humanity. Let's let's rank humanity with digital, the digital world in terms of Johnny Carson had a show called Who Do You Trust? And everybody bashed him later in years. It was, whom do you trust? Well, whom should you trust is really is really what we're talking about with Zero Trust. One sentence prediction from each of you on how much will human trust issues impact our ability to have a more secure, digitally unhackable world. Oh my goodness, be still my heart. John Walsh, one sentence. We've got to go around the table real fast. John? We need to get all on board with the thought processes that Chris provided and accept that there will be costs and there will be impacts in order to implement these types of systems and we need to be people need to be more aware and we need to move on with thank it. you chuck byers one sentence trust no humans trust no data trust no networks trust no applications trust no machines of any sort unless you are sure that the software and the configuration and everything is is earned your trust so so there you don't go. assume anything Thank you. Chris Rosendez, one sentence. Go real fast. Get comfortable with the metamorphosis. We need three generations of change in the next 10 years, and it needs to start with digital being seen as something a little bit less than uh, the fetishes with phones and autonomous driving. Digital is secondary. Human is primary. Matthew Erickson, last word, one sentence. We're almost out of time. If you can't prove that it's secure, it's almost certainly not. Okay, and there is no free lunch, and it's not in the mail. Okay, there we're going to go. I want everybody to say thank you to Don Don Deloach, one, two, three. Thank you, Don Deloach. Thank you, Don. Don. Appreciate you bringing me the topic and and being brave enough to get these four very busy, very smart, very savvy gentlemen to share their insights. And I want to thank my engineer, Aaron Keller at Voice America. He calls himself my sidekick, and he earned the right. And I want you all to wag, wag a finger. Chuck and and, uh, Chris and Matthew, wag your finger. If somebody comes to you and says the future is already here, you're going to say no. Say it with me, cut together. One, two, three. No. no. That was yesterday's future. <laughs> Today's future isn't here yet, and we're all going to do our best, our damnedest best, to make it a better one. Wave goodbye. Bye, LinkedIn. Bye, Facebook. Thanks, bye, Voice Thanks, America. LinkedIn. Thank you. Don't go away. I want to take pictures. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now.